0: Well, Josh, and welcome everybody out. I am happy to be here. I am thankful for the privilege to come and to worship and to study and to take part in this uh, series of meetings. And we just hope that we can accomplish good. And anytime you open the Word of God and you study and you get together and sing together and be with those of like precious faith, we know good's going to be accomplished if we will just open our hearts and be receptive to the things that are found in the Word of the Lord. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then we turn over here to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul says there, beginning in verse 12, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles whether we be bond or free, and have been made to drink into the one body. For the body is not one member, but many. And so what we learn as we uh, entitle our lesson, Elements for a Strong Church, God wants us to be strong. He wants the church to be strong, but the church is made up of individual members. And for the congregation to be strong, we have to look at things that will make us strong, and therefore the congregation will be strong as a whole unit. As we work together as a team. The church is, is uh, like the body. It's like a team. It's like a unit that works together, functions, functions together. There are things that we do individually. And, uh, and there are things that we do as a collective unit as we work together in the work of the Lord. And so we're going to look at some things that will help us as uh, kind of the overall theme, just sort of looking within, of things that we can apply to our hearts and lives of try to make us uh, to be stronger, better people and therefore make the congregation stronger and help the cause of Christ in general. So that's our study tonight, is elements for a strong church. The first thing that we suggest is that we need the knowledge of God's Word. If we're going to be strong, if the congregation is going to be strong, we're going to, have to be strong individually. And the only way we're going to be strong and be built up is to have the knowledge of God's Word. In the book of Acts chapter 20, when Paul was talking with the elders here of Ephesus, as he brings uh, his uh, teachings, his exhortations to a close here, he says there in verse 32, And now, brethren, I commend you to God, And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among among all that are sanctified. And so, what does he tell us there? He commends the elders to God and to what? To the word of his grace. So we have to be looking to the Lord. We have to be looking to the Lord's word. And he says that the word of his grace, that which is able to build us up. If we want to be stronger, if we want to be a stronger people, and therefore the congregation to be stronger as an individual member, as a link in the chain of a, of a group of people, well, we need to be built up in the Word of God. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15, probably one of the familiar verses, maybe you've committed to memory, in the King James Version, it says, Study the soul yourself approved unto God. other translation says, Give diligence, so... The idea of study, we think of the idea of studying, just like we're studying books, and that's involved, but also the flavor of giving diligence, because study of God's Word, it takes diligence and effort to learn God's Word. So he says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth or handling aright the Word of Truth. It is possible that we can take the Bible and make it, uh, well, we can prove just about anything, By the Bible if you distort it, if you mishandle it, etc. Like for instance, the Bible says, there is no God. Are you aware of that? Yep, it does. It says it in Psalm 19. There is no God. But that's misquoting the verse. Because what the verse actually says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. See, You can distort the Bible, make it say just about anything that you want to, but if you handle it right, rightly divide, handling it correctly. You're not going to make it just say anything. And so we need to be students of the Scriptures. When the Bible talks about the disciples of Christ, the word disciple means a student, a learner. We've got a lot of young people as I look out over the audience. And no school yesterday and no school today, but uh, hopefully back Monday we'll be back in school, the kids will be back in school. But when you go to school, you are students. Whether you're in elementary school, whether you're in middle school or high school or in college, you're students and you have textbooks. And they expect you to bring your textbooks and they expect you to pay attention to the teacher and to apply yourself and to learn. It doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come easy. Sometimes it comes easier than others and some subjects are easier than others. But you have to apply yourselves, and so it is that our textbook that we carry, whether you have the paper edition or whether you have one on your smartphone. I like it on the smartphone. That's probably one of the things I like about smartphone is that you got the Bible with you because you generally carry your smartphone all the time, and it's handy to have. And so, but the point is, you got to study it. We've got to be students. That's the idea of a disciple: is a student of the Scriptures as we open the word of the lord you see you just can't uh, have this easy way of learning like tonight you just slip your bible under your pillow and you and you lay down and then tomorrow you'll just know more about the bible it doesn't work that way You've got to open it up. You've got to read it, and you've got to think about it. You've got to meditate about it. You've got to study about it. You've got to ponder on it. And you've got to try to cipher it and and try to figure it out and how it fits in, how it fits into your life, how it fits in with the rest of the Scriptures that that we're uh, uh, handling to write the Word of God. And all that takes effort and takes time and patience. It's sort of like being in school, you know. You you, you go into a, a new math class. And it's like, well, you're scratching your head, but you keep working at it, and you, you finally begin to understand, or science class, or, or in the English class, or whatever it might be, or foreign language class. You know, you go into a foreign language class, and it's like, well, it just sounds like a bunch of gibberish. But then, as you begin to learn, you actually hear the distinction of words. But all that takes time and patience, and everything, the same way with the Word of God. And if we're going to be strong, we have to be strong in the Word. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul points out something here that's uh, profitable for us to see when we talk about the, the knowledge of God's Word. Notice there in number 14 he says that, uh, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. What's the point? Well, we need to be grounded in the truth. There are lots of winds, that is doctrines. Sometimes they blow this way, and sometimes they blow that way, and sometimes they're blowing this way, and this way. And it's just you're always in vacillation when you listen to the doctrines of men. But when you open the Word of God and you learn what the Bible teaches, I remember the fellow that helped teach me the truth. He says, you know the great thing about the Bible is like, okay, you can study it, and you come back next year, and it's still going to be saying the same thing. I mean, the Word of God is constant. The Word of God is there. It has stability. It's not changing. It's not in a state of flux and, 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 and change and, and fluid. No. Now, our understanding may increase, but the Word of God will continue to say what it always says. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 2, Peter says, "...as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby." Now, we understand that babies, We, our youngest grandson, Hattie's cousin... Uh, Jonah, he's almost five months old, but he takes milk and he's a growing little fella. And that's what milk does for babies, it makes them grow. And that's what Peter says. And so it is that we need spiritual nourishment to grow as a baby, but we need it as adults. Let's try to go out, we'll go go without food for a few days. Like last month, I had a colonoscopy. So. That afternoon, it was an afternoon schedule, so in the afternoon, I had a waffle and a piece of toast. And then at evening, you begin drinking all that stuff to empty yourself out, and then all the next day, without food. Well, let me tell you something, you don't feel like running no marathon when you go without food for a day. And we all understand that. I mean, if you're sick, it's like Kathy, last weekend, she had a stomach bug, and she didn't feel like eating much, and then... I think it was Wednesday morning. She says, I've lost 10 pounds. I said, well, that's positive. <laughs> Probably a bad way to lose weight, but it's a positive thing. You know, try to put a positive spin on it some way. But well, you go without food, you get weak. Well, we've got to nourish ourselves spiritually with what? The Word of God. And feeding upon it and meditating upon it and thinking about it and learning about it so we can stand strong in the Word of God, stand strong in what is right. Something else that will help us to be strong as individuals, and therefore help make the congregation strong, and that is to be a true worshiper. In the book of John, chapter 4, when Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman there, <clears throat> and they get into this big discussion because he figures out that, hey, he's got some special insight, he must be a prophet or something, and she asked about worshipping, whether it would be in this mountain, probably Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem, where people ought to worship. Well, what the Lord ultimately says, that the, the, the physical locality is not essential. But what is essential, he describes there in verse 23 and verse 24. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must. The word must mean that it's imperative. It has to be this way. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not something that's optional. It's not something that, well, we just sort of do it the way we kind of like it. It's not like that. We must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And brings them both together. It's like saying, two plus three equals five. Two don't equal five, and three don't equal five. But two plus two and three equals five. To please God in worship, we must worship in spirit, and in truth. That is, have the right attitude and doing the right things. If we want to be pleasing to God. That's what God's seeking. It says that He's seeking. that He's seeking true worshipers. That's what He wants. If we want to please God, we're going to be a worshiper of God. We're going to do what He says. And the way that He says to do it. Now, there may be some latitude in... Doing his will, like for instance, singing. Whether you sing alto or soprano or or tenor or bass, well, there's some latitude in that. But we're to sing. That's what he asked. We're doing what he asked us to do, and to sing and make melody in hearts unto the Lord. That we don't want corruption. We don't want some. uh, We don't want something else. We don't want something that 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 we've come up with in our ideas and and our think so's and our opinions about worship. No. It's about God. It's about worshiping Him according to His truth. And do it with the right attitude. Do it with the right mindset. It's possible that we can do the right things and our mind somewhere else. Our heart's not in it, and that's not acceptable. You can have people that have very good attitude, but they're not doing the right things, and that's not acceptable. Because it must be in spirit and in truth, the text tells us there in this passage. And then notice there in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses, uh, well, actually uses several figures or images there. Uh, but we'll just notice the last one there in uh, verses 19 and following. Now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. That's the idea of a kingdom and that we're citizens in the kingdom fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, that is, family of God, and are built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're also building together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. He says in the text that we are a holy temple in the Lord, or to the Lord. What, what, what what's a temple? A temple is a place where you worship. If you think about Jerusalem, you had the physical temple, and people came there and they worshiped. And the priests would go in and offer sacrifices and burn incense, etc. The, the things they did in the Old Testament it was a place of worship. The, the Gentiles, they had their, 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 their temples of worship for the pagan gods. They worshiped the pagan gods in, in various ways. When it talks about we as the people of God, that we are the temple of God, well, what, temp, what does temple mean? Well, it's worship. We're to be worshipers of God. That is, we're offering sacrifice, we're offering the sacrifice of praise, we're offering the spiritual sacrifices unto God, and that's all involved in the concept of, of the temple, that we are worshipers, that we come to offer something. We come to offer the thanksgivings of our heart. We come to give praise and adoration to who, to the Almighty, to the one who created us. That's what's involved in that we're committed to being worshipers, not mere spectators. You know it's kind of like uh, you go up to a arena to watch the Kentucky Wallycats. Hes, huh, this is pretty it's the same old thing. Just run up down the court. I mean, who, who does that? I mean, people, it's not in it. I mean, if you're a real true blue Wildcat fan, I mean, you're into it, you know, and, and you're watching every play, and, and every steal, or every block, or every dunk, and you're, you're sitting on edge, and you're, you, why wow, you're involved into it, and you're cheering, and you, you walk away, and, and those close games, boy, you, you bite your nails, and, and they come out of victory, and boy, you, just, you remember that, and you just take it home with you. Well, wow, because you're involved in what's happening. Well, that's the way it ought to be about worship. Well, we're involved in the study. We're involved in the sing, in the song. We're involved in the prayers that are being offered. And on Sunday, we are partake in the Lord's Supper and we give. And all the things that we do in our worship, we're giving praise to God. We're speaking out one to another to encourage one another in the right things to give praise to our Maker, the Creator of heaven and earth that created all of us. And we're trying to give Him honor and praise. And then look there in the book of First Corinthians, chapter eleven, there, number uh, yeah, first Corinthians chapter eleven, number 17, 18. Paul says, Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For well, first of all, when you come together in the church, that is, the church assembled, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. But now notice what he says there in verse seventeen. That you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The implication is that if we come with the right attitude, because where the Corinthians failed, that they were not partaking the Lord's Supper in the right manner, with the right frame of mind, and so they come together for the worse. But if they had come together with the right attitude and the right frame of mind in what they were doing in the participation of the Lord's Supper, it would have been for what? For their better. It would have made them better as they were giving praise and as they were giving honor to God. They would have been made the better. Every time we come, we ought to be made better. We ought to be made stronger. We ought to be encouraged. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, we're tired. Maybe we worked all day and we come dragging in on a Wednesday night. And, you know, we we feel like just maybe staying home. But, you know, I really need to be there. And so we come. And you know what I've invariably found out? It's like, well, it's, it's refreshing. It's like uplifting, it's sort of like just kind of a pick-me-up, even though we may be tired and, and we may be weary and our mind is, is tired, our body is tired, but it, it's sort of a spiritual pick-me-up as we come together for the, for the work of Christ, for assembling, to, for, to study and to worship, etc. And then notice there in the book of Acts chapter 2, uh, uh, when the day uh, of uh, Pentecost and and we have uh, the preaching of the gospel for the first time to be preached in its fullness. And Peter talks to them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and there are about 3,000 people that obey the gospel there in verse 41. It says in verse 42, and they, they well, who? all well, the 3,000. About the 3,000 people that obey the gospel. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. You see, they were involved. And all those things are acts of worship. There are four acts listed there. And if you look at verse 47, praising God, that would include the singing. So there you have the five acts of worship. Some people say, well, where do you get this idea of five acts of worship? Well, there's two verses that gives you the five acts of worship. Apostles' doctrine, that's teaching. You've got fellowship, that's the giving, the sharing of our means. You've got the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper. You've got prayers, that's talking to God. And then praising God, that would be inclusive of our singing. It can include our thanksgivings and prayers, but it would include our singing. So there you've got five acts of worship. An act is just something that you do. There are five somethings that we do in worship on the first day of the week. Two of those items, the Lord's Supper and the giving, is particularly. Uh, with the first day of the week, but that implies assembling together. That's what it says. That's that's the implication there. It's things that we do together. It's not something that, well, I think I'll just I'll just take me some little grape juice and some crackers and, and I'll go down and and sit on the boat on on uh, Lake Cameron on Sunday and I'll, I'll just pull that out and you know stop fishing and just worship God. That's not what. No, we come together with God's people. That's where God has ordained uh, for these things to take place. And So see, these are things that will help us to be stronger, that we're committed to be a true worshiper, that we're going to serve God. And then something else is that every member needs to be working. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6, Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 16, I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter 4, look at down number 16. Paul says, from whom the whole body, whole means total, the whole body, he says, fitly framed together, and compacted uh, by that which every Member supplies. Every, did you notice that every member, the whole body, he's addressing the whole body that if you're in the church, you're part of you're part of the body. And Paul's talking to us here. He says, the whole body, every joint supplies, according to the effectual working of the of measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying it of itself in love. Three times he addresses every member. If we're a Christian. And we're a member of the Lord's church, a member of His body. He's, he's addressing us that each of us has something to supply in the body. Every member has something to offer in the body of Christ. We're not to think too high, nor are we, nor are we to think too low. As you look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul emphasizes that how we're all baptized into the one body and that the body is many members. He goes on to talk about that. Let me just look at a couple, three of those verses and point out what he's talking about here. He says in verse uh, 15, if, a foot, if the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is therefore not of the body. And if the ear shall say, because I'm not of the eye, I'm not of the body, therefore is it not of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where, was the, where would be the smelling? Well, what's his point? Well, his point is that yeah, there are different functions, there are different members, just like you look at your, your body, you got toes. You ever try to jump without a big toe? You, you can't jump very high without your big toe. You gotta have it. You ever try to pick up thing anything with just your fingers? You know, your thumb? You, it's really hard to pick up stuff. It's, it's, like, it's like see how hard that was? That's pretty hard without a thumb. The thumb is important. It gives that counter. See, so it's very easy with a thumb pick it up like that. You know, just two fingers, thumb and a finger. In thumb and little finger, you pick up stuff. It's easy. That it shows that every member is important. In the body of Christ, every member is important. And we're not to think that we're too high, that we're so high and mighty, that, that you know, everybody's un, unimportant, that we marginalize people, that somehow that certain ones are not important in the body. That's wrong. Nor should we think uh, too low of ourselves. Well, you know, I'm not important. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just a toe. I'm just a kidney. Well, wait a minute. Your kidneys are important. Every member is important in the body of Christ, and that's what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians, and therefore tell us that we see that everybody in the body of Christ is important to the good of the whole and all that the work, all the work that is done. And then notice there in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, that very familiar verse, Paul says, listen to it, Therefore, my beloved apostles. Is that what he said? Nope, he didn't say that. He didn't say, therefore, my beloved apostles. Did he say, therefore, my beloved prophets? No. Did he say, therefore, my beloved elders? No. Did he say, therefore, my beloved evangelists? No. Did he say, therefore, my beloved Bible class teachers? No. Did he say, therefore, my beloved song leaders? No. What did he say? Therefore, my beloved brethren. That's inclusive for everybody. Because we're all brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Every member has something to supply. Every member has something to offer. Every member has something... (coughs) Excuse me. <clears throat> to contribute to the body of Christ. I was reading <clears throat> the other day, a fellow was talking about uh, <clears throat> church marquee, the church sign. And sometimes <clears throat> in signs they'll have, you know, the minister or the ministers and they'll list the name of those that are preaching at a congregation. And he said he really liked this one marquee. It says ministers, everybody. Well, that's the way it ought to be. Everybody's a minister. Because the word ministership simply means one who serves. And we all are to be servants in the body of Christ. All of us are serving in the body of Christ. We all have something to add. We all have something to contribute. We all have something that's important to offer in the body of Christ. We all not to think too high. We to no, well. Not to think too low. But everybody has something to contribute in the body of Christ. What the Lord needs is workers, not shirkers. We sometimes sing the song, I want to be a worker for the Lord. That is, to be a worker every day? Yeah, every day. Not some days, not one day a week, but every day to be a worker for the Lord. And so if we're going to be strong people, and therefore the congregation will be strong, we need to have knowledge of the Word of God. That's going to take time and effort to learn God's Word, to be committed to be a true worshiper. And then that every member is going to add and do what they can to the cause, uh, uh, in the cause of Christ, to uh, work in the work of the Lord. Something else, we need to be moral members. That we walk to the beat of a different drummer. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a very uh, serious and sad situation at Corinth. that Paul describes there. He says in verse 1, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And not just fornication in general, because Corinth was notorious for that. But he says, and such fornication is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. That was an incestuous type of fornication. It was so bad that even people of the world didn't even go along with that. They knew that that was wrong and that was bad. And there was some there, Corinth, there was one fellow in particular that was involved in that, that he was in a relationship with his stepmother in fornication. And Paul says, that ought not to be. And that's such a one because of his impenitent heart that he was to be delivered unto Satan, and that uh, in order for the destruction of the flesh that he would come to his senses. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse uh, 20, 22 there. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, look down there in number 22, Paul says, Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Now listen to this exhortation. Keep thyself pure as members of the body of Christ. We need to walk to the, the beat of Christ's standard. We listen to the world, you hear it on the nose, and you hear all this garbage that goes on, all this nonsense. We have the Supreme Court. There were, uh, out of the nine justices, five decided that homosexuality is okay, and so people participate in that. Immorality, drinking, drugs... I mean, you name it—all uh, kinds of lying, cheating, uh, bad language, etc. No, well, Christians, we, we got to walk to the to, to the beat of a different drummer. I mean, the the, the drum of the world is—you know—do these do these things. Oh, this how to have fun. This how to be cool. This how to be a part of the in crowd, etc. Of all these ungodly, wretched things that people participate in, thinking, "Now this is the way to have fun." You ever watch commercials about beer and alcohol? What do you see? Do they show people that's been in a car accident because they've drunk driving? Do they show people laid up in the hospital where they've been mangled? Do they show funeral homes and funeral processions where people were killed by somebody that was behind the wheel and intoxicated and, and they killed some innocent person? No, that's not the way it's advertised. There's some young people down on the beach and Playing volleyball and having fun and drinking a few and, and all this and this is the way it's presented because this is the way that you have fun and it's really not. Because when people participate in that at the end of the day after the pleasure of sins is over, it leaves people dry. It leaves people, you know, uh, empty and shallow and hollow and then the guilt and all the other things that comes with, with doing things that are wrong. Oh, God's will is good. God's will. God commands us for our good, the Bible talks about. When God commands, it's not that he was trying to be a mean. He said, ah, oh, I think I'll just punish these people and make them go to church and not let them have any fun in life, Not That's the way God looks at things. But he warns us about things. It's for our good and for our benefit. When he says, wise, a mocker, and strong drink is, is, uh, is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise, he told us that for our good. I thought he was trying to be some ogre just to try to be mean to us. It is for our benefit. And so to walk by God's moral standards, to be moral members and stand up for, for morality and that which is right. Something else is that we need brotherly love, and that's abundantly taught in the New Testament. Emphasized at length in the New Testament. Notice there in John, the 13th chapter, in verses 34 and 35, <clears throat> In John chapter 13, number 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by what? By loving one another. So all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Brotherly love is an identifying mark of his people. That's what the text tells us there. Sometimes we look at... Uh, Various identifying marks of the, of the of the church that you read, the New Testament church that you read about in the Bible. We talk about, you know, the scriptural worship. Well, those are identifying marks. You know, a scriptural name that we wear the name Christian, that would be a that would be an identifying mark of God's people. The plan of salvation that we follow, the steps to become a Christian, that, that we emphasize what the Bible teaches on that, and that would be an identifying mark. But the one that God specifies in this text is the one that we really need to be thinking about. Maybe, maybe, maybe we don't work on it hard enough. Maybe we don't take it serious enough. But Jesus specified. He says, by this, by what? By loving one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, uh, if you have love one to another. I forget who it was. It was a Roman historian of the first century. As he sort of observed the Christians of the first century. And uh, he just uh, observed their manner of life, their demeanor, and how they treated one another, and how they were there for one another. But it impressed him. A secular writer. He says, behold how these Christians love one another. That, that wouldn't have come by accident. It would have been people that generally do care one for another in the body of Christ that are there to help and assist and do all kinds of things in, in showing that goodwill one to another. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hospitality is an opportunity to express brotherly love, and to exemplify brotherly love. You know, when somebody has you over, well, how do you feel? It's like, well, that's really nice. It promotes goodwill. It promotes brotherly love. It gives you an opportunity to get to know folks. And it's not just something that, well, y'all got somebody visiting, we need to, you know, we need to show hospitality. It'd be something that we all do among ourselves all the time. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul talks about brotherly love. He says in verse 9 and verse 10, but it's touching brotherly love. You need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. The great thing about brotherly love is that the human heart can always expand to love even more, include more, and grow. Your heart never gets so full of love. saying, well, you know, I just can't love anybody else. You know, years ago, back a hundred years ago, I mean, people had big families. I mean, big families like eight kids, nine kids, ten kids, twelve kids. You never heard any of the old-timers saying, you know, when they had... They had nine kids, and number 10's come along. You never heard anybody say, Well, Ma, that at number ten, I don't think we could love number ten, we're just gonna have to give that enough for adoption. Whoever say that? whoever ever said that. They just they just love number ten, just like they did numbers one through nine. Why? The human heart just has that capacity to grow in love. And that's what Paul says that our love should grow, it should always be increasing in the depth and the breadth of our love for our brothers and sisters. And to have that commitment to one another and to exemplify that because genuine brotherly love is something that exemplifies itself. It manifests itself. You know, John says, let me just look at this verse. There in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. John says, My little children, let us not love in word neither in tongue but in deed and in truth. Is he he saying that, well, we shouldn't tell our brothers and sisters that we love them? It's one of those, not this, but this. A not but construction. It's like in John chapter 6 and verse 27 when Jesus says, labor not for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Is he saying don't work for physical food? No, he's not saying that. He's saying don't put emphasis upon working for physical food, put emphasis upon working for spiritual food. And that's exactly what he's saying here when he says, uh, let us not love in, in word, neither in tongue. I just, I just love those brethren down there at that. That's easy. Isn't that easy? I just said that. Does that take care of it? Does that fulfill my, the total totality of my responsibility? Will that fulfill the totality of your responsibility? Say, I love the brethren at Lakeside. Wasn't that easy? I mean, if that's all we've got to do, then that would take care of it. Now, boy, that would be magically simple and, and very very, very, very uh, easy thing to do. You're not saying it's, it's wrong to say that. Well, what he's saying is, don't put emphasis upon just merely saying it. Put emphasis upon loving in deed and in truth. You know, sick cards don't get to the sick people by themselves. You know, people that are sick uh, and people that need a little assistance in, in infirmity, that doesn't happen automatically. Somebody's got to get the food, somebody's got to prepare the food, somebody's got to take the food to help out. Or when there's adversity or tragedy that strikes and maybe death in the family and and to to help out that we take food, that doesn't get there automatically, does it? You See, that's the demonstration of loving in deed and in truth. And that's the point that John is trying to make, that we do it in actuality, not just merely saying that we love the brethren. Something else, prayers. There are a lot of verses that talk about praying. I like that verse over there in John, uh, James chapter 5, 16 and 17. when He says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it may not rain, and it rained not on earth on the earth by the space of uh, three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Elijah was a man of like passions. Elijah was a prophet, yes. Elijah performed miracles, yes. But that's not the point that James brings out about Elijah. Elijah was a man of like passions. He had feelings. He had passions. He had things that he had to do with. He was a human being. He had feet of clay. And James points out that he prayed to God fervently and earnestly, and he was heard, why? Because he was a prophet? No, because he was a righteous man, verse 16. And your prayers, our prayers, will be heard, why? Because we're prophets? Because we preach? No, because we are righteous people. We don't have miracles today. But you don't have to have miracles to get an audience with God. And for prayer to be effective, he says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You read there in Revelation chapter 8, you read about the saints offering up prayers. And with those prayers, the incense, probably the intercessions of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, the high priest. And they come up before the throne. Then what happens? Then you see God acting because then there is lightning and thunder. That is, God is answering prayer. The Lord answers prayers. Prayer is effective. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. That is in a continual, habitual uh, mold that we always are praying to God. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, notice there's a, a, a neat little verse there. In 1 Peter chapter 5, notice down there in number 7, <clears throat> it says, Casting all your care upon Him. Why? For he careth for you. Then the interlinear translation says, because to him it matters concerning you. You see, we, we cast our worries, our concerns, the things that, that really bother us. We could talk to God about that. Wow, well, because if it concerns us, well, it concerns God. He would like to hear about it. You know, sometimes you talk with people, some people they, they, they actually don't want to even hear your problem. But God, He will actually listen. And then sometimes people, they'll listen to you proud, but then they're not really able to do anything. Well, yeah, I really feel sorry for it, but not a lot I can do. Maybe I'll pray for you. But you know, when you talk to God, He not only listens, not only is He concerned, but then He is able to act in our behalf. And that's the point that we need to see, that God is able to act. And that He is interested. In the book of Nehemiah, lots of great lessons in the book of Nehemiah, but one of the things that really impresses me in the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah praying. Notice just a couple of the verses. we got several there, but I just want to notice the first couple of them. In Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4, Nehemiah hears about what's happening. It says there in chapter 1 verse 4, It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He hears about the walls being torn down. He hears about some of the afflictions and problems at Jerusalem. They don't have walls. They've got the temple built, but they don't have walls yet. And so they were kind of defenseless. And So he begins praying about the matter. He was the king's cupbearer. Cupbearer. What they would do for kings, kings is that the cupbearer that they would sort of taste whatever he was fixing to drink, be sure there wasn't poison in it. And so he would taste it. Yeah, it's okay. Kings always a very highly trusted position, and that was the position that Nehemiah served in the administration of the Medo-Persian Empire. But he was sad one day. And the king says, uh, hey, hey, Nehemiah, what, what, what's the problem? And then I want you to notice there in chapter two and verse four, then the king said unto me, For what for what dost thou make request? And then notice it says, So I pray to the God of heaven. Nehemiah, tell me what, 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 now what are you asking? Well he's telling him kind of the problems happening and what would be your request. And right before he speaks, I mean, it'd be one of those really quick prayers. Lord, Lord, help me say the right thing. Help me say it in a good way. He prays to the God of heaven. That, that impresses me a great deal. And I think about Nehemiah as he prayed. And we can be people who pray. It's like in the book of Acts, chapter 4, it talks about, uh, the brother that, that labored. Labor, that is to work hard in praying. And then one last point that we don't want to make, and that is in the body of Christ to make the congregation strong is to be united, that we're pulling together, trying to go in the same direction, pulling together in the cause of Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, Paul talks about there in number 10, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same things, that there be no divisions among you, no schisms, the marginal says, no tears. It'd be like you, you get a new coat, you get a new dress, you get a new shirt, and you're walking along and you just you brush up against the wall and there's a nail and it and then it just rips and you go, "Oh man, my new shirt And we, we're just sick. Wow! Well, because you get a big tear and it's like, well, that's right. Make it a work shirt. It's just right. Well, you could sew it up. Well, you could sew it up, but who wants to work, run around where, wear you know shirt that's got a big hole and it's all been sewed up? Might be all right for work, but you wouldn't want to go to school and places like that. And that's what he's saying there in that, in that phrase, that there be no divisions, there be no schisms among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. And the way we do that is that we all rally around the cause of Christ, that the cause of Christ always, always comes first. Absolutely the cause of Christ comes first. And we're pulling together for the work of Christ. Notice there in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 25, Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself, is brought into desolation, and every city or house divided against itself cannot stand. Like when I was growing up, I didn't didn't go to church. I went a couple of times. Once in the sixth grade with a friend. and Once in high school to a Christmas play, and that was it uh, until I got out of high school and before I ever started attending regularly. And when I read that, I thought, well, I thought Abraham Lincoln came up with that. Abraham Lincoln borrowed it from Jesus. Every kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. The point is, well, we work together, not be pulling apart. That We work together. It's like a little graphic i seen in a bulletin one time. There was like a little wagon. And you had one fellow, he's got a rope, and he's pulling this way. And another fellow, he's got a rope, and he's pulling that way. And they're just sort of kind of locked, and they sort of look at one another. And they kind of get their heads together, and they both get on the same side and start pulling the wagon, and the wagon said the gospel. We're working together. That's the way it is in the body of Christ. We're working together, not working against each other. We're working with, in chorus with, one another for the cause of Christ. And then finally, look there in Psalm 133 and verse 1. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When you talk about unity among brethren, it is both good and pleasant. There are some things that are good, but not necessarily pleasant. Like you've got a bad cough and you need sleep, taking cough medicine. Huh. Good for you. Going to help you suppress your call so you can get a good night's rest. And that's good for you, but man, it tastes awful. And then there's some things that are mighty good, but maybe not necessarily good, chocolate ice cream. Because you don't want to eat chocolate ice cream three times a day. Once before you go to bed, that's a little bit much. Probably wouldn't be too good for you. But it'd be good, it tastes good, but it probably wouldn't be good for you. But unity is both good and pleasant. The Hebrew are the, the psalmist said. And so we pull together for the cause of Jesus Christ. These are the kinds of things that will help us to be strong people so the congregation can be strong, and that we can be strong in the work of the Lord, in this congregation or wherever we be, as we serve the Lord, as we go through life. We extend the invitation. How do you become a member of the body of Christ? Well, we're not going to tell you, well, I think this or I think that. We're going to tell you what the Bible says. And what the Bible says, there are five steps to become a child of God. That, that we hear this message that, that Jesus is the Savior and that, that we can come to Him and that we can be forgiven of all our sins. And then we've got to believe that message with all our heart. And then we've got to repent. And that's going to be the tough one. Why? Because repentance means a change of heart, a change of mind. People don't like to change, but that's what God requires of us. Then we've got to confess Jesus as Lord and be baptized. And then when we come out of that watery grave, then we of course, to be faithful unto death. Revelation 2 and verse 10. And then if we do err as a child of God, will we come back through repentance and prayer to the second law part? We're going to sing this song to encourage If there's one here, even tonight, that you need to be a part of the body of Christ. Why? Because we need to be a part of Christ's church. We need to be a member of Christ's body. We need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ so we can be saved and get on the road that leads to heaven. If we can help you in any way, you come and let us know Why together as we stand and as we sing.